I guess my story now resonates more with the graduates than than ever before. So, you know, like you said, I I graduated 2009. When I was a student at Nichols, I was very active. You know, I was the president of the accounting club. I was an orientation leader, class treasurer. And everyone, you know, said to me, you're going to go on to do great things. And so when I graduated in 2009, I struggled. I couldn't get an interview, let alone a job. I felt like I had let down Mm -hmm. my peers, my professors, my parents. And I just looked at myself and I said, what's wrong with me? You know, I I was this, you know, star student in college and I had great plans for myself. And now I I don't know where to begin. And it's hard not to take a look at that and, and try to blame yourself and think that there's something wrong with you. But when in reality, it was completely out of my control. There was nothing I could have done at the time to to get an interview with these companies when they just weren't hiring. Good afternoon, Nichols College Bison. Welcome to today's Nichols College Alumni Experience Podcast. Today, we have Jillian Coyle joining us. Jill is a triple bison who graduated in 2009 and went on to get her MBA from Nichols in 2011 and her MSOL in 2016. She's currently a senior manager of corporate compliance and contracts at American Well, a Boston-based company that offers virtual doctor visits with over 500 employees. In addition, Jill serves on the Nichols College Board of Advisors. She's an avid world traveler and photographer, having been to most U.S. national parks and visiting Antarctica recently. Today, Jill has the distinction of being my first remote podcast interview since COVID-19 concerns started, and we'll get into Jill's time at Nichols, the future of telemedicine, and a talk a lot about world travel. Welcome to the podcast, Jill. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Brent. Um, I'm honored to be your first remote podcast interview. Well, a little bit unintended, but we, uh, <laughs> we're we all dealing with that right now. So we have a lot to discuss and cover today. A lot of it is very relatable to the issues of COVID-19 that people are dealing with. And so before we start getting talking about your career in telemedicine, let me ask you, how was it that you decided to attend Nichols College? Yeah, I think that's a great question to, to start this off. So I grew up in Pepperell, Mass., which is this small little town up by the New Hampshire border. I was always kind of a very shy, quiet uh high school student and very much a homebody. I didn't want to go too far, didn't want to, you know, put myself in an uncomfortable situation. So I actually decided that I wanted to stay local. And I I looked at UMass Lowell, which was, you know, about 20 minutes from my parents. And I kind of settled on the fact that, you know, I'll just live at home, um, you know, commute to UMass Lowell and then, you know, kind of have to avoid, you know, any sort of awkward situations or, um, you know, large classrooms, stuff like that. So then one day I was sitting in my um, high school classroom and I happened to just look up on the wall and there was an advertisement for Nichols. And at the time, you know, it advertised a few of the different statistics, you know, one in 10 graduates went on to become a CEO, president of a company. And it Mm -hmm. really kind of, you know, stuck out to me as, you know, this school offers a great business education. And this was kind of the field that I wanted to get into. So I ended up doing some more research on Nichols. And, you know, what ended up sticking out to me the most was the fact that this was a a smaller campus. The classroom sizes were roughly around, you know, 20 students. To, to a professor. And once I went on campus and, you know, just got that feel for the campus, it, it really reminded me of home and, you know, my quaint little town that I grew up in in Pepperell. And um, I didn't feel intimidated at all, you know, by the campus, by the size of the classroom. And it just 
felt like a good fit for me. So I ended up, you know, withdrawing my deposit at UMass Lowell and, you know, ended up pursuing Nichols. And looking back now, it was, you know, the best decision that I'd made. Well, th their loss was our gain. I may have actually put that poster up when I was working in the admissions office. So I'm pretty proud of that fact. If in fact, it was me. M kind of moving on to graduation, your class of 2009 graduated at a very rough economic time. The economic meltdown of 2008 and 2009 was caused by the subprime mortgage market, and it happened during your senior year. And the job market at that time was very bleak for graduates, as it is now. Obviously, things aren't rosy for the class of 2020 in many ways. But as somebody who graduated during such an event, what advice would you give to college students today and recent graduates about your experience with that as a graduate of 2009? Yeah. So, you know, Brent, I like to come back on campus and kind of tell this story of the struggles that I had. And I think it was... Uh, back when we had homecoming this year, September, October time, I did, you know, come back and tell my story. And had someone told me at the time, you know, the 2020 graduates will be faced in a similar situation as you, I never would have believed it. The economy was the best it's ever been. You know, I don't need to go on there, but no one could have expected this. And um, I guess my story now resonates more with the graduates than, than ever before. So, you know, like you said, I, I graduated 2009. When I was a student at Nichols, I was very active. Um, you know, I was the president of the accounting club. I was an orientation leader, class treasurer. And everyone, you know, said to me, you're going to go on to do great things. And so when I graduated in 2009, I struggled. I couldn't get an interview, let alone a job. Um, I felt like I had let down yeah. my peers, my professors, my parents. And I just looked at myself and I said, what's wrong with me? You know, I, I was this, you know, star student in college and I had great plans for myself. And now I, I, I don't know where to begin. And it's hard not to take a look at that and, and try to blame yourself and think that there's something wrong with you. But when in reality, it was completely out of my control. There was nothing I could have done at the time to get an interview with these companies when they just weren't hiring. And so it took some time for me to realize that, you know, this is out of my control, but you know, what can I do now to, to ride this out and, and survive, you know, the economic crisis. And I mm -hmm. always knew I wanted to go back to Nichols and, and get my master's degree. And it kind of was the best thing that happened because it really forced me to make that decision that, you know, I'm going to stay in school. I'm going to do it now. I'm going to get it out of the way. So I ended up, you know, going back, pursuing classes towards my MBA. But of course, I needed to make a living somehow. So I started nannying for a family up in New Hampshire. And I would nanny 40 to 50 hours a week to do my classes at night and on the weekends. And I did were those online classes or were you taking kind of hybrid yeah. So I think, you know, students nowadays are really lucky uh, that everything is electronic and technology has evolved so much that you can have that, you know, virtual classroom experience and get the same sort of education where for me, it's hard to believe back in 2009, I mean, smartphones weren't even a thing. So I think mm. Nichols had just first started going towards remote learning. And so all of my classes were remote. So it was all remote, um, which allowed me to, to, at the time, juggle the classes and, and my job at a pace that worked for me. And, you know, I, I grew really interested in the healthcare industry and I, you know, really wanted to, to see if I could pursue a career in healthcare. So when I was done with my classes, um, the mom, her name was Casey. She said, you know, I can try to get you an interview with my company if you want. So I went in, I interviewed and they said, you know, we think you're great. You have, you know, all this great experience from college, but unfortunately you just, you don't have any work history experience and we'd really be taking a risk on you. We don't know if you could do the job, if you have the skills, but you know, we think you're great. We'll keep your resume on file and we'll give you a call if another job pops up. And mm -hmm. that probably happened about three different times 
times over, you know, the span of nine months where I just kept going back to this company and interviewing and interviewing. And there really wasn't a position that they were comfortable giving me. And then finally, I got a call and they said, okay, we have a position as a part-time receptionist. We know it's out there, but this is a good opportunity for you to get your foot in the door. And I didn't even hesitate at the, you know, the idea. It was a job that I was extremely overqualified for. Um, I had my master's degree, college education, and I was accepting a job as a part-time receptionist. It only served as motivation for me because I knew that was the starting point. I used that as motivation to, you know, give it my all in this career and, you know, continue to grow. So this job as a part-time receptionist, like I said, it, it got my foot in the door and I ended up, um, you know, as soon as I was able to show my work ethic, I ended up catching the eye of other people within the company. And I was then able to, you know, secure those jobs that they had initially turned me down for, you know, six months prior. So from there, I became a credentialing assistant and then a credentialing coordinator. So I ended up working for this company for about a year and a half. And it got to the point where I felt like I was outperforming my peers and they just weren't able to grow me within the company at the rate that I, I felt as though I was ready to grow. So I was getting ready to leave that position. And I ended up actually getting contacted from a company in Boston called American Well. And I think, um, you know, we can maybe talk about my experience there a little later on in the podcast, but essentially because of my connections that I had on LinkedIn, they ended up reaching out to me saying, Hey, we know um, that, you know, Erica who works here at American Well. And we talked to Erica, she had great things to say, about you, you, you know, seem to have the experience that we're looking for. Would you be interested um, in a, a position here? This is a young company within a startup industry. And to me, it was kind of this dream job. They were in downtown Boston for this young company with an opportunity to build and grow this department from the ground up. Mm. And so to me, that was kind of my big break to get my foot in the door to a much larger organization on the cutting edge of healthcare and telehealth and really, you know, give it my all and, you know, just hope that all that hard work would eventually pay off. Um, and it has. Well, yeah, let's, let's, we can go back and I have a couple questions I wanted to get into, but I think that kind of gives a good transition in terms of the healthcare industry. Most of the people who are listening to this probably know what's going on right now in terms of COVID-19. The, your company, American Well, recently they've raised $194 million just to keep up with the demand. I would imagine this pandemic has and will change so many industries from the restaurant industry to the very ways in companies and employees and people in general work and live. A few episodes ago, I had an alumni from 67, Tom McElvain on. And he talked a, a little bit about how his company was forced to evolve and change its model of business after 2008. Originally, what started up as a uh, kind of a, a, a big storm for his company turned into something that eventually became a little bit positive. So I see a lot of opportunities for your company, as I'm sure a lot of folks do, in telemedicine as an industry in general going forward. So could you talk a little bit about uh, American Well and and kind of what the future is looking like as you know it for the healthcare industry in general and how your company kind of fits into that. Yeah, no, great question. Um, and it's actually ironic. Yesterday marked the seven-year anniversary that I accepted my job at American Well and started working there. Mm. <laughs> um, so it's crazy to believe it's been seven years. It's absolutely flown by. Um, but like you said, telemedicine, um, 
when people ask, you know, what is telemedicine, I always just explain it simply as, you know, it's like FaceTiming with a doctor. And it's funny, when I started with the company seven years ago, it was very much tabooed. You know, the idea of having a visit with a doctor over a smartphone or over your computer, just, you know, a lot of people were like, how can you give quality healthcare, you know, through a computer? You don't you have to go to the doctor, they have to touch you, they have to take your temperature. And the way I always kind of explained it was, you know, telehealth is the future. It's, you know, back in 2013, it, it, you know, wasn't really an accepted concept, but neither was online banking when online banking first came out, neither was online shopping or online dating. Um, And eventually, you know, it evolved. And now, I mean, that's the norm. And so we always kind of knew that telehealth was coming, but it just, it took a while for it to pick up speed. And when I was interviewing for American Mall, I did all this research on the telehealth industry. And I remember I read an article that said, telehealth is expected to boom and become a billion dollar industry between 2018 and 2020. And it it certainly has. And I think nobody expected it to take off the way it did uh, due to COVID. I think we were, you know, getting really close and then all of a sudden COVID hit and it's just exploded ever since. Um, When I started with the company, it's really interesting. You know, you talk about how other companies have had to adjust to different, you know, economic changes. And for us, we have always kind of been ahead of the curve and it was everybody else who had to adjust. So for example, you know, medical boards and CMS, they were always, you know, a step behind us. They regulate the practice of medicine. And and for them, they said, you know, we don't see this as an acceptable form of of healthcare. And slowly over the years, they've been coming around, changing regulations. Um, But when COVID hit, they kind of really had no choice. And I think they're now taking a step back and realizing, wait a minute, this is more cost efficient. You can keep people out of the emergency rooms. Um, It's no different. They're receiving the same sort of healthcare. And this is the future. I mean, everyone has access to a smartphone or to a computer. And so it's really interesting to see, and again, to work for a company that I've believed in this mission for so long and to finally get to a point where, um, you know, telehealth, it's the future and it's here to stay. And it's just great to have played a role, you know, in this journey and in this, um, you know, it's like we're writing the story of telehealth and to have worked for a company and been given that opportunity to basically, you know, develop this technology and this network of providers. It's it's pretty amazing. And I'm sure it's something that we're all going to be experiencing a lot more. I, I read a recent article about American Well and the same thing that happened with Zoom and other companies is that suddenly you find yourself in much, much higher demand than you ever were before. And it's kind of like a great business problem to have. But at the same time, it can be a little bit of a nightmare because you have technology crashing and that type of thing gets harder. I I read in that article, I think that the, the wait times now were three to four minutes now that all of that has kind of gone through. But before that, it could take up to 15 minutes to actually see somebody. And I'm thinking to myself, I've sat in my doctor's office for almost an hour before <laughs> past my appointment. If, exactly. You know, that's the issue. Yeah. Uh, are most of the appointments that are booked by the company, are those primary care physicians who are, are meeting with folks or is that kind of follow-up visits through oncology or a little bit of everything? Yeah. You know, it's, it is a little bit of everything. And um, the great thing is you actually don't need an appointment to have a visit on American Well. It's it's on demand. We have, you know, a full network of providers licensed in every state. And, you know, at first we were kind of comparing it to Uber where, you know, you go on, you 
request the doctor and, you know, within, you know, three to four minutes, like you said, you can get a doctor on your phone. So, you know, we have our own medical group and we specialize primarily in um, urgent care type consults. But, you know, we have health systems and hospitals across the nation who have bought our technology. And, and like you said, maybe they have an oncology practice or dermatology. Um, they use it for, you know, different use cases. But, you know, like you said, um, volume shot up, wait time shot up. Um, we at one point had uh, 3,000 physicians expressed interest in joining um, American Wells. So we had to credential all those providers. And we actually, overnight. yeah, we actually credentialed and onboarded more providers in 45 days than we did in the seven years prior. So it was a massive effort that we all had to come together as a team. We were working very, very late nights. Um, but at the time, you know, I said, this is what I've worked for this company for seven years for. So it, it's just been great to see. I, I wonder if there's going to be a, uh, a shakeup in the lollipop industry once this finishes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I remember going into the doctor's office and getting those little lollipops. That might be a thing of the past because I think that and banks are the only places I've ever seen them. Exactly. Uh, in doctor's offices. But, you know, I'd imagine being a business student, you know, leadership can be can be kind of tough, I guess, when you have different departments working together. So as somebody who graduated with a business degree, how easy is it to adapt working with, say, a chief medical officer to create a plan for something like credentialing, given that there's probably a lot of medical terminology you're unfamiliar with, just as I'm sure a lot of the business concepts might kind of give some pause to somebody who's specifically trained in, in medicine. And I guess the true truth would probably go across to your sales team as well. So can you give some tips as a manager? How do you how do you manage seamlessly to work together as an organization to achieve that common goal when you're not always exactly speaking the same language? Yeah. And it's funny when I interviewed, you know, at Medicus, the first job I had, I, I was so hesitant because I was like, wait a minute, I'm not a doctor. I didn't go to med school. I don't know what a DEA or a controlled substance license is. This terminology is way over my head, but, but that didn't matter. You know, at the end of the day, it all boils down to it's a business. It's an operation. Um, how can you efficiently scale this operation to grow with the business? And I'm very fortunate that, again, the way the cards fell and I ended up going, you know, right on to get my MBA. And then from there, jumping right into my career to the fact that everything I learned um, in grad school was so vital and so important. Um, I think the classes towards my um, master of science and organizational leadership were really valuable. Um, I remember taking uh, creative thinking, um, you know, a lot of just management courses where we did case studies, something that I don't really remember doing that in undergrad, but I know in graduate school, you really focus on case studies um, mm -hmm. where, you know, you're looking at what other companies did and how did they change. And starting with American Well, it was a five person team within a very small company. It was about a hundred people at the time. And I was in this even smaller team within the company. And all of those, you know, classes and courses and case studies that I read on, you know, how teams grew and, and you do go through growing pains and things didn't work. Um, you know, I had employees that didn't work. A lot of those skills ended up carrying over and I actually went back and read some of my case studies and I presented them one day to my boss and I said, oh, and then I also read this book and this and that. And he said, you know, you, you really seem to like, like these books that you're always referencing and these uh, different case studies. And he said, you know, you should start a book club. And I ended up actually doing that. 
Um, and we read some, you know, some books, um, you know, Who Moved My Cheese was actually one that I think I read, which was all about change. But it was, you know, really cool to be able to to bring that into my team and, you know, share kind of those things that I had learned in grad school. And, and like I said, actually see those then carry through on the changes that we made and how we became more efficient and were able to scale. It was really cool. And, you know, it didn't matter that I was working with a, a chief medical officer or a doctor. At the end of the day, we were all kind of in this for the same purpose to, to grow up as I guess if we were going to make a documentary about nickels, like the one about the bulls kind of equating degrees to rings, you'd be our Michael Jordan. So you have you have three uh, degrees from nickels. Um, what? So a lot of people might be looking at going back to, to school or, or getting a graduate degree as a board of advisor member, you know, just from what you've heard in meetings and that sort of thing. One of the crucial things Nichols needs to do in order to kind of grow and continue to innovate um, is to grow our graduate program, our, our graduate and professional studies area. So as somebody who has a Bachelor of Science in Business, an MBA, and an MSOL, which is a Master's in Organizational Leadership, like what's the difference if somebody's looking for an MBA versus, say, an MSOL? What would you say the, the, the differences in between those two programs? My major was actually accounting and finance. Um, I was very analytical thinker, and I thought I wanted to, you know, work with numbers and solve problems. And um, I think it was my sophomore to junior year, I ended up doing an internship in an accounting firm. And I said, you know, wait a minute, I don't want to work with numbers the rest of my life. I'd rather work with people. But, um, you know, at that point, I was too far along in my major. I didn't want to change it. So I ended up sticking it through. But, you know, I realized that at the end of the day, I'm graduating with my bachelor's in business. There's not really that focus on accounting. They're not going to not hire me because I had an accounting background. I was still getting that overall business education, which was great. But like I said, I, I realized at that point that I wanted to work with people and I knew I had to further my education to get some of those skills. So to me, the the MBA program was really just an advancement in my bachelor's. It was still a lot of business courses. Um, you know, I had to take financial courses, um, which by the time I got to my MBA program, I was so done working with numbers. But I mean, it's all important stuff that you had to learn. And for me, though, the MSOL was really where, um, you know, I shined in that program because it was all about dealing with people and change and, you know, creative thinking and stuff like that. And so for me, I was so glad that I was able to kind of bucket both together. I think the MSOL is a little less recognized than the MBA. Um, a lot of jobs these days, when you apply, it will say, you know, MBA preferred. I always tell people, I feel like you're a master's degree is a new, you know, undergrad education because a lot of companies are really looking for that edge and you really do have that edge, um, you know, when you have your MBA. But for me, I think just also having that, that extra MSOL, that experience that I learned and that, you know, I'm able to carry my job was just huge. I, I know that you've signed on to be one of our, our alumni mentors in the Nichols Way program and, and the mentorship is going to be a big part of Nichols kind of going forward. I think we've always done well in connecting our alumni with students, whether that was getting them jobs or internships at the company or just uh, saying, hey, can I can I uh, introduce this student to you and maybe see if you can network them around a little bit. Now we have these programs set in place the Nichols way in our accounting mentorship program, where it actually gives a lot of that behind the scenes stuff in advance. So students wouldn't say one day, I'm a senior, I'm going out there to get a job in accounting and it's just not my thing or, or a junior or even a, a sophomore. So that's kind of a cool thing. And to be a part of sort of the ground floor of that 
Uh, I know you haven't really had a chance to meet your student yet. Have they reached out to you? They have. Yep. Her name is Bridget, and I actually heard from her yesterday. Oh, fantastic. Wow, that was quick. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're part of that kind of first group, and then if that goes well, I think we're going to actually start we're going to start integrating that in with our sophomores. And right now, it tends to be more upperclassmen. It was a voluntary thing that was sent to all students. And we were a little concerned about the job market, the way things were going. Students have lost internships. Students had job offers rescinded, or they were just nervous in general about what they were hearing. And now we have this mentorship program where we're matching alumni up that will actually kind of... Uh, help students move along and feel a little bit more comfortable that they have another set of eyes on them. So I'm looking forward to see how that goes. Kind of moving forward a little bit, I know that one of your passions is travel and photography. Obviously, you've probably not been doing a ton of that lately. I was supposed to be in Italy next week myself, which isn't happening. But you've spoken to a lot of classes that have been very impressed with your your travel resume. A lot of people discuss career goals and they set work-related plans during their time as a college student and even beyond in that they're saying, well, I want to be a manager at this point. I want to be a vice president at this point. But I noticed that you, in addition to doing that, also mentioned you kind of created a career plan that took into account your passions, namely your passion for travel. I think young people need to kind of do more of this as they plan out their big pictures. So many students are hyper-focused on how to get where they want to be without thinking about work-life balance and passion. So I guess the long question would be, how does one add a hobby or passion into their early career plans? Like how do they sort of uh, keep an eye on that while they're, while they're building their career and getting where they want to go that way? Yeah, great question. And I'm sorry to hear about your trip. If it makes you feel any better, I was supposed to be leaving for (laughs) Hawaii next week and that's clearly not happening. So, you know, for me, I, like I said, when I started my job in American Well, I really wanted to prove myself and I really wanted to grow. So I spent a lot of time and hard work up front. Um, Some advice that I had received um, earlier before I started my career was, you know, when you're in your 20s, that's the time that you want to be working hard. That's the time you want to be in the office until 10 o'clock at night. Um, That's the time where if you need to work weekends, you want to be working weekends. Because by the time you're in your 30s, that's really when you're going to want to settle down. You're going to want to start a family maybe or travel um, or really pursue your hobbies. And usually by the time you get to your 30s, that's when you are a little more established in your career and maybe you're making more money and you're able to, you know, afford those um, goals that you had, but it's really hard to accomplish that in your twenties. And so I took that advice and I said, you know, I'm, I have nothing else to do. I'm going to work hard, grow in my career. And I did just that. And um, I probably spent, I think it was about three years where it was just nonstop. I, you know, hardly took any time off, but I got recognized. And every year I received a promotion. I quickly, you know, grew to manager and was overseeing a team. I had received an accreditation for the organization, which ended up, um, you know, generating lots of revenue in the long run. Um, And I finally was able to prove myself. And my boss knew I was, you know, serious and knew the type of work that I produce. And I went to him one day and I said, Hey, look, you know, I've maxed out on my PTO. I have over 200 hours of PTO. I've worked nonstop the past three years. I just, I need a break. And I really, I just want to take three weeks off. I want to go out West and I just want to go on a road trip. And he looked at me and no hesitation. He said, you know, this is going to change your life. And he was extremely supportive. And, Mm -hmm. And like I said, at that point in my career, 
I had established myself. I had, you know, put in all the time and effort where I was able to take three weeks off. Um, I don't think, you know, if I had gone in there in my first year and took three weeks off, I don't think it would have looked well on me. So I think, you know, when you have a passion and a hobby, um, like I said, I, I think early on in your career, you have to focus on your career. And then as, you know, as you move along, you'll find that, you know, once you establish yourself, you can really start to pursue kind of that work-life balance. And so I did end up going on that three-week trip. I um, started in Colorado where my sister lives and I drove, I think it was 6,000 miles in 19 days. And I ended up going to 21 national parks. And my boss was right. It did change my life. And I remember the last day, you know, driving back, I had just made a big loop from Colorado. I went north and then circled back around. And on that last day, I remembered crossing the border back into Colorado. And I just broke down and started crying because it was such an emotional trip. I did it by myself. Um, and I really was just able to take in the beauty of all these national parks. And But the biggest thing for me, I was you know, just sitting there and I was like, I deserve this. I earned this. I worked so hard in my career to get to this point where I now can take these trips and I have the financial ability to travel. And it really, you know, I set a goal at that point where I said, you know, now that I know how to better balance work and personal life, I'm going to be better about balancing a work-life balance and um, travel is a passion of mine. I, I was never going to go back to, you know, working those super late hours without at the end of the day, treating myself to these trips. And so from there, I decided I'm, I want to set out and see all the national parks. And uh, to date, there are 62 national parks. And over the years, um, my company has been great. Again, I've been able to establish that rapport where my bosses um, don't even think twice when I ask them to take a week off to to travel to see all the national parks. And I've been to, I think it's 42 out of 62. So I only have 20 left and I've accomplished that Mm -hmm. in, I think it's been four years. But yeah, so like I said, travel is just, you know, it's really become a passion of mine. And, um, you know, I'm so thankful that I was able to grow in my career and get to a point where I'm now able to to enjoy that. So if, if someone told you that as of a month from now, all travel would be banned for five years and you could only take one trip before that ban went into effect, which isn't too far off from what's happening right now. But if, if you could spend 24 hours or a week in, in one place, you know, as, as kind of your last trip for a while, where, where, uh, where would you uh, choose? Yeah, so you had mentioned, you know, early on in the intro that I went to Antarctica. Um, that was, you know, amazing, once in a lifetime, um, and probably hands down the best trip that I've been on. But ever since I went to the South Pole, I now want to go to the North Pole. And so the uh, company that does the excursions to Antarctica actually also does them to the North Pole. So that is now a goal on my list. It's a little um, on the pricier side, so it's probably in my five to ten year plan, but um, I think if I could afford it and travel was locked down for five years, that's a trip that I would definitely want to go on. Is is the, the North Pole more dangerous than the South Pole, or how does that work? I imagine they're both pretty cold. Yeah, so it's funny. I always thought that there were polar bears in Antarctica, and I never knew that there weren't polar bears in Antarctica until I went to Antarctica. Lots of penguins, whales, seals, uh, but no polar bears. So the polar bears are in the Arctic. So when I went to Antarctica, we actually um, had the opportunity to camp outside. Unfortunately, the weather didn't cooperate, so I didn't get um, to do that. But uh, I was hoping, oh, well, maybe when I go to the North Pole, I can camp outside. But because of the polar bears, um, they don't allow that. But uh, I think the temperatures are probably the same, but you get you know, different creatures up north. 
So what, what makes Antarctica so great? I've always heard about it, but the thought had never really crossed my mind to go there until one of our alumni um, came back and showed me pictures. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm all in. Yeah, um, you just it's it's magical almost. Um, it's just so pristine. It's untouched. Um, I ended up kayaking one day and I remember looking down in the water and I thought I saw a plastic bag and it was actually a jellyfish, but like, you don't see, you know, there's no trash down there. And like I said, it's just so pristine and to see the penguins and, you know, the icebergs and it was just, it was amazing. And I think for me, um, I'm a solo traveler. So I ended up taking the trip by myself on the boat ride down there. I ended up meeting nine other people on the boat who were also solo travelers. And so we kind of bonded together and I was able to enjoy the experience with these people from all around the world that I ended up meeting. And I now have friends in, um, you know, Australia, Switzerland, Italy, uh, Scotland. Um, so I think for me, just being able to bond with other people who share in the same hobby was, was awesome. So if somebody was, uh, if somebody was looking at who hadn't done much travel, wanted to go somewhere, Antarctica would be up on your recommendations. Any any other places that you would send someone, you know, any of the national parks say that uh, you wouldn't really think of going to, but turned out to be amazing? Yeah. Um, so I'd have to say next to Antarctica is probably Bora Bora. That was up there on my list too. Um, absolutely beautiful. Really cool to stay in the overwater bungalows, swim with sharks. So that's a, another special place. But in terms of the national parks, Green Tetons in Wyoming is number one on my list. There's just something about, you know, those mountains, the Rocky Mountains are just beautiful. And, um, you know, it, it really changed my life when I went there again, you know, you just get so emotional in some of these parks. And that was just one that always moved me and I went back again last year with my sister and we just we had a great time but all of them are unique they're all beautiful in their own way but I definitely encourage everyone to get out there and experience at least one there are 62 and they're all across the country so um there's plenty out there to be seen all righty let me ask you one last question before I, I let you off the hook here so you had mentioned before a lot of the professors and staff members you've met at Nichols over the years really stand out to you who do you think the, the professor is that you've learned the most from, uh, not necessarily from book knowledge, but just in general? Who, who's a professor that really stands out you would like to give some props to? That's oh, a tough one. Professor Hilliard was always great, and he always gave stories of him in the business world, and they kind of just always resonated with me. But I also had, you know, really good relationships with my accounting professors, Professor Barron, um, Professor Armstrong, who I know recently retired. You know, it was always great to go back. Years later, I, I would run into Professor Armstrong, and he would always um, bring up the story when I was the accounting club president. I put together this itinerary for a field trip we went on, and being very type A, I had color-coded all of the different pages, and every page was a different color. So when we were on the field trip, I could tell everyone, okay, turn to the purple page. And he was so impressed with just that one thing that I did. And it always, always stuck with him that years later, I would go on campus. And that was, you know, if you know Professor Armstrong, just how funny he is, and he would bring up stories. And that was always the first thing that he would say. You know, he'd tell people, you know, one day I went on a field trip with Jill, and she made this itinerary that was amazing. And he always just had this way of instilling this confidence in me that, you know, he made me realize something so small was, you know, really appreciated and valued. And um, he was always just a really, you know, special professor to me. I have to get him on the podcast. I had lunch with him a lot when he was at Nichols and I was there. And Jack could talk about just about anything. 
Yeah, I have to get him on here. Rick uh, Hilliard, uh, Professor Hilliard, was actually on the podcast. He was my first episode. For those of you listening, you can go back and you can listen to Professor Hilliard's episode. But thanks so much, Joe, for for joining uh, me today and us today. And uh, I, I appreciate everything that you're doing for the college, all that you give back to the school all these years later, and and hopefully uh, others will follow your, your well, lead. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, you know, I really look forward to continue to stay involved and um, just leave it on this note that, um, you know, when I got out of school and I was struggling, I was able to connect with a lot of people who really helped me just get through those difficult times. And I remember um, there was one gentleman who was friends with my dad and he ended up, you know, inviting me to business lunches just to sit there and network. And I remember I said, you know, thank you so much. And I know how I can ever repay you. And he said, you know, you can repay me by paying this forward. You know, one day you'll be just fine in your career. And when you get to that point, you can pay it forward to other students and other young professionals who are struggling. Um, And I always kind of kept that in the back of my mind that, you know, when I do get to that point and I am able to pay it forward, um, I wanted to do that. So to be able to now give back to the college, give back to students, help share my experience with them, um, it's really important to me. So thank you for the opportunity.